all the feels on this one. Because that's what the science says. Welcome to The Whole View. I'm Stacey Toth of Real Everything. I'm all about loving the skin you're in and being healthy inside and out. Let's talk about what this looks like in real life. Facts do not have opinions. And I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne of thepaleomom.com. I believe that scientific literacy is the key to improving public health. Just don't let perfection be the enemy of the good. Science is true whether or not you believe in it. Self-love is really about self-respect and acceptance. Welcome to The Whole View, episode 478. We are going to be talking about something that is a passion of mine, the non-mutual exclusivity of doing everything you can to support your health in a natural way, but also understanding medicine exists for a reason. Who'd have thought? I feel like we've covered this in lots of different ways on the show before, but Dana's question I think is an opportunity to dig into this in a little bit more detail, but also I feel like we can get so caught up in all of the different things that we're doing every single day to support our health. And when we do get sick, because it turns out that diet and lifestyle don't make us like superhuman. Um, so when we do get sick, it can really feel like we're being blindsided. Like, look at all the effort I've put in to, you know, eating a nutrient dense anti-inflammatory diet. Look at all the effort I've put into, you know, sleep and stress management and activity. And here, this this thing is still happening. And I feel like Dana's question, um, while it's, you know, this is definitely going to be a heavy topic this week, I, I feel like it's a really good opportunity to kind of unpack that a little bit and explore some of the ways that we still can get sick, uh, even when we're doing everything right, but also like what the tools are at our disposal when that happens. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And also, part of the problem with blame culture and I haven't really like used that word before but hopefully it's kind of self-apparent right I feel like there's a lot of um self-shame that happens when either something happens with our body or maybe with our children or something like that and it's like we especially as mothers it's not to discount you know people who aren't caregivers but I think for those of us that feel responsible for the well-being of ourselves or of others, we immediately go to this, like, what did I do? What should I have done different? And that should word is really where we can get into a lot of problems when we go down then like a stress cycle, which doesn't really help us. So I know we're going to talk a lot, but I just kind of want to like take a minute to let everybody like relax your shoulders and Take a deep breath and let it out and remind yourself, like, you cannot control everything in the world. That has been a really hard, difficult lesson for me that I'm still struggling with. Um, but it has been life-changing for me to remind myself, like, I'm not responsible for everybody. I can't control everything. And even if you do everything right, something could still go wrong. And that can apply to food and health, as well as like the rest of your life. So I totally agree. I think it's a great question. I know we're going to dive into some deep science and also some, you know, emotional, mental goodness. I'm doing a 
hug right now. You can't see me because it's not a <laughs> video option. <laughs> and I realized it was like this super awkward pause, and it was because I was like, and are you virtually like hugging? hugging? Yes, you're air hugging right now yes. in front of you, and like pretending there's yes. a body there. So your arms are just wrapped around in kind of a circle. I need to know how big the air body is. Is was, this like are your hands overlapping? Barely, or is just this just barely? finger Got overlap? Because I want there to Got be room it. for whoever needs to come in to this circle. You know, I do not give hugs freely so it's pretty special <laughs> maybe we should well, jump into dana's question before i embarrass myself further <laughs> um i mean i think we're all enjoying this moment but uh i agree we should get into dana's question because i definitely want to give dana a huge hug um so this is actually the third question of dana's that we've answered on the podcast dana is a longtime listener and she writes hello ladies my two favorite people I feel greedy writing to you a third time, but here we go again. I promise you I will not be disappointed if you don't answer, but I do highly respect any and all opinions and information you put out into the health world. I recommend your resources to everyone, even my doctors. You helped me a lot with an initial weight loss about four years ago, and then with keeping my healthy eating practices while I was pregnant with my second child two years ago, with minimal guilt, I might add, so I truly thank you. Sadly, after I delivered, I got sick. Doctors said I was fine, but through persistence and testing six months later, I was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, a form of cancer, and I'm having trouble coming to terms with it. The reason I seek you guys out is WTF. I was doing everything right. The health world says if my gut and lifestyle are good, do a little fasting, reduce the sugar, I should be good. No, I feel a bit bitter to the health world I've now been a part of for years. People keep recommending naturopathic treatment and think I'm crazy not to do it. I can't afford it, and my oncologists are saying no. I'm very far gone, and I need all the conventional medicine advancements to keep me alive. I just want your opinion on cancer, and maybe even my bone marrow cancer, if you know anything. My prognosis isn't good. There's no cure, and it's spread to my bones. What do I do health-wise here? Am I justified to ditch the health world now and go full conventional medicine care? What stuff from the health world do I keep around? I can't take chances, and I need to go with science. You are the most science-minded people I know. Please consider a response if you have time. Thanks for reading, Dana. I uh, knew this question was coming, and I'm still teary-eyed. Dana, I just I want to give you an actual for-real hug. Um, also, uh, hearing that this is just right after you've had children and your children are young, like I completely empathize with how difficult this would be for you. And I know we're going to get into it. I want to remind people we're not medical professionals and we cannot and would not give medical advice. And I think it's fantastic that you're working and listening to medical professionals. I also know that there are things that even medical professionals would say from a lifestyle factor support the treatments that you do. And so I know we're going to kind of get into that, but I just you know, I'm, I'm sure I'm not the only one that gets a little choked up and upset reading this. I mean, that's just my heart breaks for you. And I'm so sorry. And, and good for you for continuing to talk to doctors and be persistent and, and get tested and find what was going on. And I'm, I'm sorry that the prognosis wasn't better. I, I wish that there was something I and we could all do because I know we're, our hearts are all with you. Yeah, I want to second all of that. I think, uh, you know, Dana, this is this is just 
I mean, it's, you know, cause you're going through it. It's, um, I can't, I just can't even imagine how frustrating and scary and, um, exhausting and stressful. It just, it just all must be. So, you know, please know first and foremost that we are sending you all the good things, our thoughts, our prayers, our positive vibes, strength, love. Um, I want to acknowledge like first and foremost that, um, what Dana's going through sucks. Absolutely. And I know that, um, this information will apply to more than just Dana. So thank you for submitting a third question for trusting us so much. And um, I hope that we can not just help you, but help a lot of our listeners who have either themselves or family and friends who are going through cancer, because you're not alone. Um, This is something that, you know, I remember when I was a kid reading a statistic, something like, it's not a matter of if, but when, we as adults, like either ourselves or the next generation will all have cancer. Like it's, and that seems extreme. And I hope that with, you know, lifestyle people can avoid it. But the fact is sometimes it's unavoidable. And um, we've talked about things like PFAS, just being in the environment, like no matter what you do, there are things that are out there. So um, maybe Sarah, you can kind of walk us through a little bit about what cancer is, because that's not actually something we've ever covered on the show before. Yeah, I think, you know, it's important to kind of walk through what cancer is and our, our collective current understanding of its very complex causes, because I want Dana to know that this isn't her fault. Um, you know, I really want to emphasize, again, that you you can do everything right and and still get sick. And cancer is, you know, one of the things that can happen it's a really complex group of diseases that is very broadly caused by the accumulation of DNA mutations. And these mutations basically change the behavior of a healthy cell. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about cell immortalization and where some of these uh, cell lines that are used in scientific research come from cancer cells. And it's because the mutations basically make it so that those cells don't age. They live forever. They reproduce forever. And uh, in your body, that's that's not a good thing. So this collection of DNA mutations basically allows for rapid growth of a cell. Um, so cells can grow and divide and reproduce themselves, make clones of themselves very, very quickly without any constraints. It also, um, the mutations remove the constraints that would normally be there. So normally cells stop growing when there's like the right number in whatever part of the body they are. Cancer cells lose those controls. Um, They're basically losing what are called tumor suppressor genes. I actually studied a a tumor suppressor gene for my second postdoctoral research fellowship. Um, And it's there are multiple, multiple tumor suppressor genes in our cells. So a couple of mutations can basically remove those constraints on cell growth. And that means that not only are they dividing, but they start accumulating 
And that's what can cause solid tumors, which is a little bit different than what's happening in, in multiple myeloma, where it's still causing uncontrolled growth and it's stopping those cells from doing their normal job. That's the other piece of this. So in multiple myeloma, that is a major factor in the symptoms because those white blood cells are no longer no longer doing the thing that they're supposed to do. Um, but it's the same idea that these cells are able to clone themselves, uh, live forever. Um, you know, I've, I've heard it referred to as, as basically, you know, cells perfecting themselves. So it's like the perfect cell, but to the detriment of the, the whole being. Um, and so the other piece that can happen here is these mutations can make mistakes, uh, repairing DNA errors. So, DNA repair genes are a thing that exist, and they what they do is they they look for errors in a cell's DNA and they make corrections. So when you lose those that ability to make corrections in DNA, then you can start to accumulate even more mutations that can lead to uh, cancerous cell growth or cell transformation to a cancerous cell. And we can collect these gene mutations from a whole pile of different places. So some of them might be mutations that we're born with. Um, so there are some cancers that can be entirely attributed to mutations that are inherited from our parents. That's a very small percentage of cancers, but there, that does, there is a cancer risk genes that we can just inherit and then we have them our whole life. That's something there's, like the BRAC gene, right? Yes. Okay. Um, and then there's also a collection of mutations that we can um, collect. Collect is, that makes it sound like a hobby. It's not a hobby. It's just a thing that happens. So most of the gene mutations that would contribute to cancer are things that are not inherited but they're caused by all kinds of different things. So some of the things are obvious, right? Like smoking or radiation, but some of them are less obvious, like viruses, like exposure to carcinogens. And as you already said, Stacy, right? PFAS are in our environment. There are carcinogens that we're being exposed to at very low levels on a, on a daily basis, most of the places where we live now. So that might include things like air pollution, right? Water pollution, um, chemicals that we're being exposed to in the food supply. It it's um, it's sort of ubiquitous now. Um, but other things, right? Poor sleep quality, sedentary lifestyle, uh, certain hormones, chronic inflammation. All of these things can increase the likelihood of a gene mutation that may contribute to cancer. And the last thing that is, I think, really important to understand is we can also collect these gene mutations purely by chance. Um, it can just, just be a random process. And it's kind of horrible to, to think of, just think of the contribution to cancer just being bad luck. But I also think it's really important to mention because there's so many parts of this that are outside of our control. And it just happens that sometimes a 
gene muta mutation will occur in a normal cell, and then uh, the normal mechanisms that would repair that mistake, even if you don't have gene mutations that impact DNA repair, sometimes that mistake is still missed and that can still cause a cell to become cancerous. So there is an aspect of this that is random and is chance. And so what happens is uh, cancer is very rarely caused by simple, you know, one or two gene mutations. It's typically caused by a large collection, dozens of gene mutations. So it's the gene mutations that you're born with and then added on top of them, the ones that you acquire through your life that work together to cause cancer. And it's, it's not clear how many, you know, there's not like a cutoff, like once you have 25 of these mutations, that's going to form a cancer. And that's because different mutations are impacting uh, cellular behavior in different ways. And so it, it's not a simple recipe. Um, but it's also likely that different types of cancers require slightly different recipes in terms of, of what gene mutations you're collecting. I highly, highly recommend, um, if our listeners want to dig into this in more d detail, the book, The Emperor of All Maladies. I don't know if I'm pronouncing the author's name right, but, but um, the author's name is Siddhartha Mukherjee. I'm probably terribly butchering that name. I loved the book. Um, the audiobook version is also excellent, and it is a really interesting breakdown of understanding of cancer, but told through the history of cancer therapy uh, with lots of different stories sort of interspersed throughout the book. It is fascinating, and it is a, a really fantastic book just for understanding how complex cancer is. Um, but I also wanted to, to mention, you know, as much as we're sort of focusing on cancer and answering Dana's specific question in this episode, it's not just cancer that is a thing that we can get if we're doing everything right from a diet and lifestyle perspective. We can still get an infectious disease. We can still have an autoimmune flare. We can still develop a new serious chronic illness. We can still get injured, Stacey, as, as happened to you. And I think we've tried hard to be really upfront with our own health ups and downs over the last over nine years of doing this podcast. And, you know, we hope that being vulnerable like that has helped to emphasize that there's no diet or lifestyle that will make us invincible to these types of challenges. And, you know, again, I, I want to, I, I want to come back to the theme of this podcast that, you know, it doesn't mean that diet and lifestyle is pointless because obviously we have a tremendous amount to gain from those efforts, but it, it doesn't reduce our risk by a hundred percent. It doesn't reduce our risks down to zero. And that's really important to emphasize. So reducing your risk of chronic disease, still awesome, but there's no amount of healthy diet and lifestyle that will cause your risk of chronic disease or other infectious disease or other health challenges to go down to zero. One of the things that I remember so vividly and gosh, I mean, I must have still been a teenager, so I'm not exactly sure, but this 
do you remember the Oprah episode with the secret? That was, oh. was that when, I would think it was in high school when that came out, like a long time ago. I don't think I saw it, but I do remember when it was like all over everywhere. Well, so what happened, what, ha- what happened was um, there, what I remember like more vividly than the show itself is the result of people being inspired by that show and doing things like trying to will cancer out of their body and that not being something that was effective and Oprah being really like trying to communicate to everybody. Like that's not what we meant with kind of manifesting your future, like, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I, I, whenever I think about someone who has cancer and is talking about like the different things that they are or aren't going to try, my mind goes back to that the memory that I have of all of that kind of like blowing up in the news at the time and just how sad the family members of these people were who were like crying and saying like, it's treatable. It's, you know, like if, if they got treatment right now, it would be fine. And like them not doing it and the, the loss that was of their life and their family's life and all that kind of stuff. And I, I just, it like, breaks my heart that there are things that we have, not for everybody, right? But there are things and, and resources and medical things that we have that um, are beneficial. And then we also know that, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, there's there's nothing that shows that anything else will treat cancer other than the the known kind of medical treatments that we have for cancer. That's correct. Um, and I think, you know, I was pulling together some different studies to, to go through because, um, I, I know we both really want Dana to find peace in her decisions and feel, um, confident in her choices to go all in on conventional medicine, um, and conventional cancer treatment. And so I was pulling together different studies, basically disproving any effect of, all the different things that are on the internet showing, you know, like that, that people are doing instead of working with an oncologist and doing conventional cancer treatment. And one of the things that, that kept coming up for me was the idea that right now those things kind of all fall under the banner of alternative medicine or complementary and alternative medicine, often uh, given the acronym CAM in the scientific literature. And if anything does turn out to be effective in those studies, it is used in conventional medicine and it kind of does this, this transition from alternative and complementary into conventional. So there have been some, you know, drugs that have been developed that are based on phytonutrients, for example. So when we think about them, as phytonutrients, right, triterpenes that are really rich in certain medicinal mushrooms, when that's turned into a medication and then dosed properly and it goes through the clinical trials and it becomes one of the tools that an oncologist has for specific types of cancer, it's no longer under that banner of alternative or complementary medicine. It it follows this little bridge across into conventional medicine. And so one of the things that I think is really helpful is just kind of understanding that, you know, cancer research is a very um, 
active field of research. And there's a lot of interest in, for example, the anti-cancer property of various phytonutrients. Um, there's a lot of interest even in some of the diet protocols that have been purported to improve cancer. And we're going to go through some of those, those clinical trials. But once something becomes a legitimate cancer therapy or cancer treatment, it does cross into, right? It, it, it no longer is considered alternative because it's added to the toolbox of an oncologist to save your life if you are diagnosed with cancer. And oncologists generally are very used to rapid new developments in cancer therapy because there is a lot of drug development in this field. And like I just mentioned, drugs that have a root in homeopathy, natural medicine, botanicals, uh, even diet protocols. So they have a root in what kind of spreads around the internet as, oh, you're diagnosed with cancer. All you need to do is this, 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 this. Um, that's when, when you see that on the internet, typically not scientifically proven. Um, but once it is shown to be beneficial with a magnitude effect, with a safety profile, with, you know, all of that scientific evidence that needs to be there, the mechanisms explained, then it becomes a, a tool in an oncologist's toolbox. And it's one of the areas where there's a much faster, um, timeline between basic science and use of medical practice compared to other fields of medicine. This podcast is sponsored by Third Love. Sarah, do you know why the brand is named that? Actually, I don't. <laughs> Third Love started with the idea that for too long, women were forced to choose between two options when it came to bras, over-the-top sexy and unflattering modesty. Neither one looked great, and so they created a third option. Interesting. I do love that they also give back. As the largest donor of undergarments in the U.S., they've donated over $40 million worth to people in need, and their charitable contributions even helped heal turtles. Yes, and they also offer so many options. Underwear, sports bra, loungewear. I love that their focus is on comfort. I tried three seamless wireless bras and love them all, especially the adjustable ones. And I appreciate how size inclusive they are. Their tagline is, you fit here. And that makes me so happy. Yeah, I took their online fitting room quiz, and I have to say that I was super proud to get the result that I was wearing the right size bra, but then I purchased one of their suggested bras based on my quiz results, and not only does it fit perfectly, but it is super comfy and exactly my style. And I also really love the underwear I bought too. The quiz did not take very long, so I was really impressed with how accurate it was, and it is so cool that it can help you figure out your true size from home. Feeling is believing. Upgrade to everyday pieces that love your body as much as you do. Right now, you can get 20% off your first order at thirdlove.com slash whole view. That's 20% off at thirdlove.com slash whole view. I have heard of some of these mythical things um some of which I so here's the thing that I just want to be clear about to both 
Dana and our listeners is, you know, cause we, you also mentioned not just cancer, but all these other things, like you could still get sick and, um, s- still have been doing everything right. It's also to say that just because you get sick and you're using conventional medicine, you don't need to give up all the other things that could support it. Like all the times yeah. that we've talked about, I mean, even just when we were talking about cruciferous vegetables, I think that was last week, we were, we were talking about the um, positive effects that it has to um, reduce the potential for cancer and those kinds of things, right? It's 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 not that we kind of give up on all those things. And, and I imagine that what Dana's feeling, what I would be feeling is resentment towards, but I was doing all these things and it didn't work. So bleep off, you know, like just... Yep. Um, but we, we do know that there are decisions that you can make, especially if you're going through treatment that can be more harmful. Like I know, for example, um, my, I have a a very close family friend who is going through breast cancer treatment and the doctor said to not use, um, personal skincare products that have known carcinogens or irritants in them, right? Things like phthalates and things that we've talked in the show before. And so this person came to me and said, okay, I need help figuring this out. I know your products are safe. Help me out. But I think what's interesting is, you know, if we make a decision at that point to be like, well, I ha- I have cancer now. Why, why bother? Um, it, can, it can be harmful to your healing. But I'm wondering how many of those things like, for example, switching to a more safer um, skincare is actually going to be helpful. Like, w- what what are some of these rumored things and which one does the science validate as, as being supportive? Not that it will cure, right? Because we know that that's not going to be a fact. But what can support the conventional medicine practices that we're also doing and, and what's just hullabaloo? That's the word I'm going to use. <laughs> Yeah, hullabaloo is a perfect word. I think that, you know, there's a lot of science to show that the normal types of, you know, healthy, balanced diet that we talk about on the show, sleep, stress management, um, activity, especially gentle movement can be very, very helpful for supporting the body. Those things are all things that an oncologist is going to recommend that you keep up. And of course, reducing carcinogen exposure is you know, still going to be beneficial. And there is some interesting studies where, you know, these alternative protocols are combined with conventional treatments, which I think is actually much more interesting to look at. Um, Studies that take these alternative complementary medicine practices and pit them against conventional treatments um, generally show... Uh, conventional treatments are vastly superior, and if those studies even exist. So there's certain areas where clinical trials still haven't been done. So all we have to go on so far is animal studies, cell culture studies. And, you know, we we did a whole show on the, the scientific me- method, episode 423, where we talked about the, the weight of different kinds of studies, what different types of studies can help tell us. And those studies, animal studies, cell culture studies, are what I refer to as mechanistic studies. They're studies that help us understand why something happens when they are intervention studies. So we're going to give this animal 
a drug and see if it makes them better from this illness. Or we're going to put this animal on a diet and see if that makes them better from whatever we're measuring. Those are the studies that have we have to be very skeptical about in terms of how they translate to humans because intervention studies, uh, whether it's a dose difference, an effect difference, right? Our biology is just different enough that just because it works in rats or mice or, or pigs does not mean it's going to work in, in humans. So with intervention studies, those are the ones that we need to be more skeptical of and look for clinical trials to validate. Mechanistic studies are where we can put a lot of weight in those studies because they help to explain an effect that we've already measured in humans. So that's where that is different. So let's go through some of the different uh, protocols, diets, botanicals, supplements, uh, things that have been proposed uh, in large part because of the internet um, as potentially beneficial for cancer and some of the studies that have actually disproven or failed to prove. Um, and those are two different things, right? Um, failed to prove a beneficial effect. So the, the first one I wanted to cover, I think we've actually talked about this on the show before, Stacey, is the Gonzalez protocol, which is similar to the Gerson method. It includes, uh, they both are sort of like vegetarian, vegan diets with, you know, vegetable juices, uh, supplements, co daily coffee enemas. The Gonzalez protocol includes um, pancreatic enzyme supplements, dry brushing, uh, salt and soda baths every week. Um, and there was a, a study done in the early 2000s, it was actually stopped early in 2005, that was part of a a group of funding for the NIH for studying alternative medicine protocols. And uh, what they did was they, it was a late stage pancreatic cancer and they compared the Gonzalez protocol with traditional treatment. And the, the patients treated with the standard chemotherapy survived an average of 14 months. Whereas the Gonzalez protocol um, patients survived an average of four months. So that's why the study was stopped early because it was unethical to continue because the patients that were randomized to the Gonzalez protocol were basically losing out on an average of 10 months of life that they could have spent being with their family, right? I mean, in with that type of um, really serious cancer, time is is what you're buying and with conventional treatment and it's so so important because that is i mean at that point that's everything and so this was one of you know the really important trials to show despite this protocol having all of these different pieces that were all about you know detoxification and supporting pancreatic health um that it it not only didn't help, but it was vastly inferior to the standard uh, chemotherapy treatments that are are used in in those cancers. Um, and I I feel like this this is something you know I think the the there's still a life on the internet for vegan juice fasts and coffee enemas and. Um, and all of the different aspects of, of this protocol, I think it's really important to know that the clinical trial that was designed to evaluate 
its safety and efficacy showed that uh, not only is it not effective, but it is not safe, right? It's it it leads to measurably worse outcomes than traditional therapy. Um, Dana mentioned that her friends have recommended homeopathy. And I think it's really important to understand that there have been no clinical trials looking at homeopathy for cancer treatment. There's been very, very limited animal research. There was a a brand new meta-analysis published in May of this year where they looked at 23 experimental cancer model studies. So that is, um, it was 14 in vitro, which means cell culture, eight in vivo, uh, which means animal models. And then they had one that was a, a combination, no human trials. The studies were predominantly performed in India and actually mainly from just a, a few different research groups. And they predominantly focused on the what are called cytotoxic effects. So basically the ability of those um, homeopathic treatments to kill cancer cells, which is kind of the same research that we were talking about last week, looking at sulforaphane in broccoli being able to have anti-cancer effects on you know, cancer cells in a Petri dish. Um, it's interesting early research, but there's so many miles to go from kills cancer cells in a Petri dish to you can, you know, put these drops under your tongue and it will cure your cancer as, as an adult human. And the, even the authors of this systematic review, um, they concluded this is a, a quote from the paper, fundamental research of homeopathy in cancer is still at an early stage, has mainly been performed by a few group of investigators, and the results point to an interference of well-selected homeopathic medicines with cell cycle and apoptotic, apoptotic mechanisms in cancer. However, these findings still need independent reproduction. They're basically saying with this statement, it's really too early to make conclusions, and um, we still need reproductive uh, studies, right? So studies that confirm these results from other research groups, and then we need to be moving on into more complex models um, and eventually into humans. And I think those that phrase, well-selected homeopathic medicines, is really important because homeopathic remedies are not well-regulated. So um, there's uh, other studies that have basically shown that it's we basically can't draw conclusions because of the methodology differences from report to report. So, um, you know, even looking at there's a lot of studies looking at adverse effects of homeopathic medicines, and it's really unclear um, how much the the expertise of the professional recommending them is important versus the quality of the actual dilutions versus what is, you know, what is the safety profile of each individual homeopathic medicine. Um, so it's, it's still in this phase where it's, again, it's basically showing that phytonutrients destroy cancer. Um, this is why a diet rich in vegetables and fruits reduces cancer risk. Again, doesn't reduce risk to zero, but it's, 
it's, I would put this in the same category as, right, just because the sulforaphane in broccoli inhibits cancer, as we talked about on the show last week, that doesn't mean I'm going to go on the broccoli diet to treat cancer if I get diagnosed. Um, it's, it's such early phase and there's no research to, to go from, from kills, kills cells, cancer cells in a Petri dish to could be helpful in humans. Those clinical trials do not exist. And yet studies have shown that a lot of people around the world do look to complementary and alternative medicine, mostly homeopathy. So about 65% of people who are using complementary and alternative medicine, either in the hopes of it treating their cancer or in addition to conventional cancer treatment, um, that most of those people are, are going to homeopathy. And there was a, a really important study. Again, we always put all of the links to the studies I talk about in the show notes that actually showed that it was a study of women in breast cancer. And it showed that those who were using complementary and alternative medicine actually had more cancer-related symptoms, including fatigue, than the study participants who were not using complementary and alternative medicine. So that actually points to um, potential harm rather than benefit. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. And given that this week was Mental Health Awareness Day, I love that we can recommend a service that will match people with a licensed professional therapist based on their specific needs. Yes, I have benefited greatly from therapy, ranging from just having someone to talk things through with to skill-building workshops offered by my therapist. Same. Therapy is an essential part of well-being and has been life-changing for our whole family. If you haven't had success or ever tried, let BetterHelp match you. Then start communicating in under 48 hours. BetterHelp provides access for clients worldwide. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy to change therapists if needed. You can even read testimonials about their therapist posted daily at BetterHelp.com reviews. Plus, it's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. And they have information on their website about insurance coverage, too. Our listeners can visit BetterHelp.com slash WholeView, that's BetterHelp, and join the over 2 million people who have taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. Why invest in everything else and not your mind? Special offer for the WholeView listeners. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash WholeView. This podcast is sponsored by Paleo Valley, maker of all the things you hear us talk about when supporting your body's natural immunity, our favorite collagen-rich bone broth powder, and their food-based essential C complex. We covered the detailed science on why those in particular are our favorites on episode 446, Nutritional Deficiencies from Stress. I'll keep it simple, though. Our bodies need vitamin C, and Paleo Valley's is a whole food-sourced quality supplement that has concurrent phytonutrients that make this type of vitamin C up to 2.5 times more bioavailable. Us? Simple? Never. <laughs> <laughs>
Well, I'd be remiss to not also mention how helpful not just Paleo Valley's Essential C complex is, but also their bone broth collagen and organ complex are for me feeling my best. And I've seen results from my own testing and nutritional sufficiency using their supplements. Yes, our bodies use extra vitamin C, especially when we're stressed or sick. I also highly recommend their bone broth powder. All their products are made without the use of chemicals and harsh solvents. That's why we both use and love Paleo Valley 100% grass-fed bone broth protein. And Paleo Valley does third-party testing to guarantee you're getting a clean, healthy product. So head to paleovalley.com and enter code THEWHOLEVIEW at checkout to receive 15% off your first order. I'd suggest adding some meat sticks too. Oh yeah, they're really good. And don't forget to check out Paleo Valley's other fantastic products using code THEWHOLEVIEW. It's interesting hearing you talk about that. And when I imagine it, and the question is, would you go on the broccoli diet to treat your cancer? No. But would you quit broccoli altogether because you're going with conventional medicine? No. Right? Like when I, and I think that's maybe the, the nuance and the difference that, we always try to strike that balance here in this show, right? Like we're firm believers in science and uh, conventional medicine existing for a reason when needed, but also knowing that you can support your body to take those treatments as best you can if you are doing the other aspects as well. And so I think that like that's a really good example for me of what we mean by the benefit of both, because I know that we live in kind of like such this black or white or dogmatic sort of approach sometimes where it's like, well, I'm doing this thing or I'm doing this thing. Like, no, I'm, I'm doing everything that I can to support feeling my best. And that includes, you know, in my house, there are some people who are on medicine to support their serotonin production. Um, but that doesn't mean that like they're just going to give up on everything else that we try to do from a lifestyle perspective and doing therapy and all that stuff. Right. It's the, it's the same kind of approach with something very serious, like cancer treatment, in my opinion, is like, of course, I'm still going to eat broccoli. <laughs> right. Um, sorry. I didn't mean to, this is, this is so difficult because I know that it's, it's a real life that we're talking about here. And I know, I never want to like belittle or make light of that. Um, but I hope that we all kind of understand how important this is what we mean by a holistic approach and the whole view, right? We mean like all of it, all encompassing. So um, I know there's something that goes along with homeopathy sometimes called photodynamic therapy. Do you know anything about that or what, what if the science says anything? Or I mean, I honestly, I don't even know what it is. It's just something I've heard of. Um, yeah, so I, to be perfectly upfront, my knowledge of photodynamic therapy is incredibly surface level. And that's in part because it hasn't been thoroughly studied. It basically is the combination of like photosensitizers and oxygen and light to stimulate the production of reactive oxygen species. The idea being that then that would trigger the death through apoptosis of cancer cells. There was a July 2020 review that 
concluded more research is needed to be conducted before conclusions can be made. So it's just another area where, I mean, there's not even very good uh, basic science on this in terms of cell culture studies or, or animal studies, uh, let alone human clinical trials. So it is yet another thing on the internet that falls under that banner of complementary and alternative medicine that has not been proven to be effective by scientific studies. Um, right. So what you mean by disproven versus not proven, in this case, it would fall yeah. under the not proven category. Okay. Yeah. So I would put Gonzalez pro- protocol uh, under disproven. I would put homeopathy and photodynamic therapy under no, not not studied well enough to make any kind of conclusions, right? So not disproven. Okay, now we move into the part of the show where the can is not only opened, but worms are going to crawl out and jump <laughs> off onto our face. Um, I mean, know- the part that's going to get all the internet trolls commenting. Here's the thing, is we... We like to utilize scientific references at at all times. And I know that sometimes those don't align to what we're already doing or believe. For example, we already have a show lined up in the near future. And we have done this before where we revisit a show with updated information. And we will be the first to say you know what, we've got new information or we made a mistake or whatever the case may be because that's the way science works. You do the best that you can until you know better. Um, And what I love about science is that it's constantly evolving and we're constantly learning new things and that helps us become better people, better parents, all that kind of stuff. Um, And one of the things that's really hard for people to hear sometimes is if they believe that something is working well for them for whatever reason that the science might say otherwise. Um, but just remember, we're not here to tell you like you're wrong. <laughs> like we're not like pointing a finger at you and getting mad. We're, we're going to talk about what the science says about fasting and ketogenic approach to food. And if this doesn't align with something that you believe, I just encourage you to be open to hearing what we're saying because maybe it doesn't apply and maybe you're in an n equals one situation only you know that or maybe there are things that you might hear a spark of there's evidence to support in a study that you might actually identify with and be open to hearing if you give that thought now that said we're obviously talking about this as it relates to cancer treatment. And that is entirely different. Just like, um, for example, I know we've talked before about keto with, um, epilepsy as being, um, something that can be helpful. And I so often hear keto as being, um, something that people should do when, um, going through cancer because of cancer liking sugar. So I'm sure you have much to dive into on this topic, but I just kind of wanted to like put the little, put the little like flag up that says like, not just please be kind, but please be informed, right? Like we can, we can all talk 
respectfully to one another about information, but please make sure that um, if and when engaging with us, which we love you to do, that we're doing so in a respectful way, also with facts and science and information. (laughs) Thank you for um, doing the disclaimer work uh, for the show. I, I also want to, because we're talking about keto and some studies that have combined keto with short-term fasts or intermittent fasting in the context of cancer, I want to let our listeners know that we've covered this in depth on the show before. We actually talked in depth about adverse effects of ketogenic diets way back in episode 140. That science is all still really solid, um, but we revisited it in episode 305, where we talked about the non-metabolic roles of insulin and why we see sort of similar adverse effects from very low carbohydrate and ketogenic diets compared to things like type 2 diabetes. And it's because of insulin being a super hormone and having so many important roles in the body. And we also talked about intermittent fasting in episode 386. So we, we have already sort of foundation laid where we are not, um, super enthusiastic about these approaches. And that's because the science is not, I mean, I don't think science has enthusiasm, but the science is not very supportive of, of a benefit for these approaches for general use, especially for ketogenic diets. Stacey, as you mentioned, there's some uh, therapeutic effect in refractory epilepsy. There's also some interesting studies showing that it may have effect in other neurological conditions, so neurodegenerative disease or multiple sclerosis, some things like that. There is some preliminary data showing that it can potentially be helpful. So also, you know, we want to talk about keto as a therapeutic approach for very specific conditions that you would do under medical supervision because there is a very high adverse reaction rate. Um, So there's very, very high other systems in the body that can be negatively impacted that you want a doctor to be monitoring and making sure that that's not happening to you. But I think what's interesting is when we think about keto and where it may have some therapeutic value, those are all conditions that involve the brain. So it's also interesting to know that the clinical trials that have looked at the impact of keto with or without a combination with intermittent fasting have mainly been done in brain tumors. Um, There's a couple of exceptions, which I'll get into. Um, And I think it's helpful to completely acknowledge that there are some animal and in vitro studies that do show some reasons why ketogenic diets or other fasting mimicking diets may have some benefit. Um, but as we'll get into the clinical trial data at the, at this point is very underwhelming is a generous term, I think. And I think it's also helpful to say that not all animal studies looking at ketogenic diets and cancer show an effect. So, um, in June of this year, there was a meta-analysis looking at animal studies that have evaluated, uh, ketogenic diets and cancer. It included 12 different studies, five showed some, some benefits, um, one showed huge detriment, uh, the rest showed 
you know, basically a null effect. And when they combined the statistics from all of those studies, they showed the overall effect was right on the line of the margin of error. So it is very, very difficult to draw a firm conclusion from that level of data. Um, and as I mentioned, there are some some human studies. So far, they're, they're mostly limited to um, seeing if the diet is tolerated, if people will do the diet, if they can measure uh, ketones in these people. And uh, the, so far, most of the studies don't actually measure an effect on the cancer itself. Um, so there was a study published just last month in September 2021 of 50 glioma patients. And they were randomized to either have irradiation compared with a standard diet or irradiation compared to a protocol that combined a ketogenic diet with fasting. And it was three days keto, three days fasting, alternating back and forth. And the endpoint of the study was just whether or not the people followed the protocol. So out of the 25 that were randomized to the keto intermittent fasting plus irradiation protocol, 20 of them completed the study. And the authors showed that there was no effect of the diet to either quality of life or cognition, but they were able to measure things like ketones and low glucose levels. Um, so they were able to, to show that the mechanisms that in animals seem to be responsible for an anti-cancer effect were happening in humans, but they didn't actually even measure whether or not that improved survival or changed tumor size or uh, improved the efficacy of the irradiation. That was not measured in the study. Presumably, the authors will publish an additional paper at some point that actually shares those kinds of measurements that would tell us whether or not there actually was a benefit to keto in that study. There was a, another study published in August of this year. Um, it was 25 patients with between grade 2 to grade 4 astrocytoma, and they, um, they were at post- chemotherapy. So they had chemotherapy that led to stable disease. And then they were put on an eight-week diet that alternated two days of fasting with five days of a ketogenic diet. It was a modified Atkins to be basically um, extremely low carbohydrate. Their net carbohydrates were below 20 grams per day. And again, they, the endpoint was whether or not the patients followed the diet, not an impact on tumor. So out of the 25 patients, 21 completed the study. They said the diet was well tolerated, but there were two grade three adverse events, one being seizures and the other ones being neutropenia, which again, we talked about on our keto show. And there's, I've also uh, have an updated, very extensive article on my website about adverse effects from ketogenic diets, which we can link to in the show notes as well. So those are things that do happen that are not, uh, not an entire surprise. So sticking with the theme, another study um, in patients with primary aggressive brain cancer, 15 subjects using a ketogenic diet in addition to current standard treatments that included surgery, radiation therapy, and chemotherapy. And again, 
the study just evaluated whether or not patients could stick to the diet. And this particular study was interesting because it laid down this entire like two-page-long bullet point list of things that could be done to help patients stick to the diet um, because they found that overall patients really struggled. And again, they didn't measure outcomes relevant to whether or not it improved the, the actual cancer that they were going through. And then uh, finally, or, or maybe penultimately, um, there was a study done uh, where they, they actually stopped the study early. Um, it was, again, glioblastoma patients, and um, they, they stopped the study early because they were having trouble recruiting patients. So they ended up only recruiting eight. The patients were um, either newly diagnosed or had already gone through radiation and temozolomide treatment. And what they did was they had these patients on a keto diet, and they did actually do MRIs to measure, like, how, you know, how the keto was impacting um, brain tumor. Um, what they found was um, seven out of the eight patients died, and the one who didn't had um, a symptom reversal, tumor shrinkage, um, and lower or resolution of brain edema um, and was still alive at the end of the, the study. Um, it uh, basically, the, the authors themselves conclude that the sample size was, was too small to draw any conclusions as to efficacy. I would also argue that um, the, the lifespan post keto was not, it was within the range that is expected with these types of really serious brain tumors. So it's, and also spontaneous tumor shrinkage also happens in these patients. So it's very, very difficult to attribute any particular effect to, to keto in this study. Um, so that was, that was, that was the closest to a human trial to actually measure an impact of a ketogenic diet in tumor progression in brain cancer. There was also another study published in July this year that looked at um, patients with non-metastasized rectal cancer. And they looked at the ketogenic diet. The rationale for doing that in these patients was that obesity and low muscle mass are established um, risk factors for a worse outcome in these patients. And so they weren't actually looking at whether or not this diet necessarily would impact cancer treatment, but they were looking at whether or not it would help this group of patients lose weight. And so they did show that they, they lost weight. It included water weight, um, and it included, uh, you know, glycogen, the, the, the same type of rapid weight, weight loss that any diet will create in those first couple of weeks. Um, and then they showed, you know, a further, further weight loss. I mean, we've talked about this on the show at length, um, that ketogenic diets are inferior to other approaches for lean muscle mass preservation through weight loss. We've also talked about on the show before, 
at length about how weight loss does not automatically make you healthier and that it's actually healthy diet and lifestyle that correlates with outcomes, not your actual weight. So putting all that into context, um, they had 18 patients on the ketogenic diet and they showed that um, combining, again, ketogenic diet with radiation therapy, this is, this is what the authors wrote, um, that their regression analysis showed that they almost reached statistical significance in tumor responses. So uh, what that means is they did not reach statistical significance. Again, we already talked about why that's really important, because especially when you have a low sample size, statistical significance tells you the likelihood that the results you had are due to chance versus them being a legitimate result. So if you do not reach statistical significance, it means there's a much higher likelihood that your results being somewhat different are uh, attributable to chance. You just happened to have patients that were going to respond better to the radiation therapy in your ketogenic diet group compared to your standard diet group. And that is completely responsible for the slight difference that you're seeing in outcome. Certainly, it would be interesting to do a larger study and see if higher numbers can tease out whether or not there is an effect. But what this study shows is no statistically significant difference between the ketogenic diet group having their rectal cancers irradiated versus the standard diet group. And that is all the studies in humans on keto slash keto and fasting. And um, when I actually was digging through this, I was expecting there to be more given how pervasive recommendations are on the internet for if you have cancer, you know, just do keto. I mean, I guess it's roughly equal to vegan juice fasts in terms of popularity on the internet. Yeah. I'm wondering too, you know, I mentioned when I hear that it's always associated with because cancer loves sugar, which we do, we do know that cancer cells grow on a diet exam, for example, with uh, processed foods and sugars, right? Like that is why we talk often about the broccoli diet. I'm just going to refer to it as that <laughs> from now on. Um, no, no, we don't want to accidentally start something. Okay, okay. That's it's going to become even a if thing. I say it's it with trending laughter. everywhere. Okay. It's going to be everyone's going to be doing the broccoli cancer diet. It's going to start being a thing, and then we're going to get named as the inventors of this thing, and then thousands of people are going to do it, and it's going to be terrible because it's not going to actually cure them because it's not a thing. And then, and you're then, really rolling with this. No, I'm just saying let's let's not okay. even joke about fair. it because badness could occur. Badness. That's fair. I don't want to start any badness. Um, so I will say, you know, when when I think about what we see in actuality in studies with diets, for example, is that it's not. Um, the actual choice of whichever do like diet you choose, right? Like there's all these recent studies that um, have come out and we've talked about some of them on prior shows that show, you know, it's not about the actual 
veganism. It's not about the actual like Mediterranean approach. It's not about counting points or calories. Like in general, when someone is aware of the choices that they're making and they reduce the energy load that they're receiving and they remove processed foods because most of these approaches are are doing that, then you see a result from a weight loss perspective and what people are realizing in more modern times than we did, say, back in the heyday of where it all started in like the 80s and 90s is it was putting all of the results on that particular approach, right? Versus what do all of these things have in common? And I think if I were to guess based on the studies that we're seeing, it might be less about and the information that you shared with me about insulin, which again, I'm just a lay person, but you know, in understanding all of that, it's less about, um, the complete absence of an insulin response and more if there is a positive effect coming from the result of removing those highly processed and highly uh, refined sugar type items that could feed cancer cells and less about you know, the absence of fiber, for example, <laughs> because I'm sure, I mean, for me personally, if I were, if I were going through treatment, I would be so focused on eating a rainbow at every meal. Like I would just be having the biggest salad with every meal because we know that the colors in food are indicating to us what types of antioxidants and phytonutrients are in those foods to support and fight free radicals. Like as a lay person, I get that, right? Like I get how essential vitamins Uh, and nutrients in fruits and vegetables are to being able to support. And so for me, the idea of ketogenic approach is just so contrary to that because we know that the antioxidants, meaning the things that fight cancer cells, right? Like that's the definition of it. Um, our, our highest immune system and yes, and support yeah. the immune system with vitamin C and um, all all vitamins and minerals, right? Like th- those are highest in fruits and vegetables. So to focus on a dietary approach that eliminates that or significantly reduces it, just is it doesn't it wouldn't make sense to me from a scientific perspective and. But again, to say, if you went into the science and you found that, we would be sitting here discussing it and saying, just like we're able to say, hey, we do see positive results in people with epilepsy, for example. We would yeah. sit here and, and tell you what it is. We're, no, we're not here to, we, we don't want to be the China study people, right? We, we don't want to cherry pick the information that we're sharing to meet our own agenda. But it does logically make sense that that is what you would find. And it does also make logical sense that if someone is, eliminating McDonald's, for example, because they're going keto and now they're no longer going to eat, you know, the hydrogenated refined foods that they would see a positive result from that because it's less about what they are doing and more about what they're removing in that scenarios. And all of that is me thinking that's not like, you know, a study that Sarah is sharing with you, but that's how I'm able to kind of make sense of it all, you know? So to me, when I think back to all of that and the information that you're providing about these alternative things and the information that Dana is looking for, 
it's to say as much as I'm sure she feels super frustrated that she was doing wonderfully with all of this stuff. And it also just, you know, kudos to her because she was doing it through pregnancy and all of this kind of stuff. Like, I just, you know, I just want to give all the high fives and elbow bumps and virtual hugs and like just anything I possibly can to you, Dana, for this journey that you've gone on, because I can't imagine what that's been like for you and the ups and downs and how frustrated you're feeling that you, you did all those things and you made the efforts and you were eating the rainbow and you were feeling better and you reduced your inflammation, um, through AIP and you had, you know, a wonderful pregnancy and then you got sick and, and I would be looking to blame and feeling frustrated as well. But, but the thing of it is, like Sarah said, some of these things are just out of our control so often. And, We have to let go of that because that's only going to hold us back from our healing. To have that stress in our lives, really, there is a lot of science, and we've talked about it on the show before, to to talk about how stress negatively affects us. And so the more you can just, like, when you feel that tension building and that frustration, no matter who you are and what you're feeling, just if you can, just try to, like... Like, I kind of joke about it to myself, but I literally breathe it out. Like, I'm just like, I can't hold that in right now. That's not mine to hold. This is not, that's not my baggage. I, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, this is not my responsibility. I'm letting go of that. And I'm, I'm focusing on what I can control. And we know that what you can control and what you can do is continue to work with your doctors in feeling really great that you're doing everything you can to have as much time with your loved ones as you can and live hopefully a life that, you know, is a quality of life for you. And I would also encourage you to go back and listen to our shows about um, CBD. And we, we had that 420 show, Sarah, where we Mm -hmm. talked about um, marijuana. If you're on a state that does medical marijuana, that might be something to explore. We didn't go into detail about that here, but I know that that is not a treatment for cancer, but that is something that from a lifestyle perspective might be helpful and has also good um, scientific benefits that we went over in those shows. So, you know, to me, I'm just everything that you can do do it and the things that you can't control or, you know, that you wish you'd done in the past or blah, blah, blah. None of that matters. You just got to let go and let your body try to do what it can right now, um, is what it sounds like the science is supporting. Am I, am I on the right track here? A hundred percent on the right track. As we wrap up this part of the conversation, I I do want to acknowledge that there are case studies looking at different protocols or case studies looking at keto and cancer that are really interesting that, um, you know, case study is a study in one person, a case series is a collection of case studies where, you know, somebody with a brain tumor went on the ketogenic diet and, you know, had some really impressive results. And so I I want to wrap up this conversation by saying science is a process. It is the iterative expansion of human knowledge. And I'm happy to see studies that are well-designed, that show a magnitude of effect, that have a, a randomized 
aspect to them that are um, prospective. So they have people come in, they randomize, they do the treatment, and then they measure the results. We're just not there yet with complementary and alternative medicine treatments. And I would love to see that science expanding, but as we've kind of talked about at the top of this conversation, once they hit a proven magnitude of effect, they're going to cross the bridge into a standard treatment because that's how oncology works right now. So I want to encourage our listeners broadly to be skeptical of claims on the internet about alternative medicine treatments curing cancer, because at this point, none of them have been proven by scientific studies. But the conventional treatments for cancer are well studied. They have good statistics to go with them that are even like cancer specific. And they're currently our best choice for treating cancer. I can tell you that if I had a cancer diagnosis right now, I would be working with my oncologist. I would be doing all of the conventional treatments uh, that are called for in my situation. And, and the thing that I want to recommend to any of our listeners who are going through this is ask lots of questions, have an open dialogue with your doctors. Um, and if you hear about something that may be helpful, they're going to be very up to date on the science. Um, because again, as we already talked about the Delay between basic science and oncology is much shorter than other fields of medicine. Ask ask your doctor what they think, um, and and trust that it is in their best interests to look after you with all of the tools at their disposal. And it is important to, as we've already talked about several times on this show, you can still support your body through chemotherapy or radiation. There are studies showing that many different phytonutrients can actually mitigate the side effects of chemotherapy. So that means fewer side effects from that really intense cancer treatment. Also, it's helpful to know that people with cancer often need more calories, they need more protein, they need more antioxidants than usual. Um, people undergoing chemotherapy are more likely to be deficient in several nutrients, and this is likely something your oncologist will talk to you about, but those are magnesium, iron, vitamin D, and folate. And so talk to your oncologist about food sources versus supplements. That's something that they're going to be the expertise in. And then I think it's also helpful to know that cancer treatment can cause loss of appetite, cause GI symptoms. And so some of the some of the you know, normal rules, I'm using air quotes for that, in terms of best practices for diet and lifestyle, those aren't applicable in this situation anymore. So if you need to graze to get enough food instead of distinct meals, do that, make every bite count. Um, but if you're, you're limited in what you can stomach or what you can keep down, do the best you can. This is also where um, marijuana or CBD may be helpful. Talk to your oncologist. Again, they have so many different tools to help not just treat your cancer, but help support you through the process that they are your best resource. Well, Dana, we want to send our absolute 
love and hugs to you and we're thinking of you thank you so much for sticking with us this long and we hope that you'll still be a listener for a long time to come i listeners want to remind you to just keep doing the best that you can Um, we will continue to share everything that we learn from the science in terms of lifestyle but know that no amount of guilt or looking back or feeling frustrated is going to change anything so Focus on what you can do, what you can control, and leave the rest. And thank you so much for listening. And we'll be back next week. We love providing the Whole View podcast for you as a free resource. You can support the show by using the links and codes we share in our podcast. And we love to read your reviews and chats wherever you listen. And don't forget to share our podcast with your friends and family. Speaking of chat, did you know that you can get exclusive behind-the-scenes content on Patreon? When you support us with your Patreon membership, you get access to live Q&As and weekly bonus audio. But they're not for kids' ears because our bonus content is explicit. You can also stay in touch with us via our social media channels. I'm at Real Everything Blog. And I'm at The Paleo Mom. And we've got more great resources on our websites and in our newsletters. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.